This morning, we are in week two of our six-week series called Give Yourself Away, which is a series that piggybacks our previous series on the Holy Spirit of God, that when the Holy Spirit is part of our lives, He is calling us continually to serve, calling us continually to give. And I appreciate what Michael had to say just a moment ago. There's lots of opportunities that we have to give. And so that's what the Holy Spirit calls us to do, to continually sacrifice, to continually give ourselves away to other people. And so last week, we kicked off our series by looking at what it looks like or what it means to give ourselves away to Jesus, where we, we took a look at the societal culture that, that pervaded uh, nearly every people, every nation, every culture throughout thousands and thousands of years, that for thousands of years, people have operated largely according to a, a patronal societal value. I know that's a couple of random big words that we don't use a lot. But basically what I'm saying is that every culture throughout history has had two kinds of people. There are patrons and there are clients. A patron would be somebody who was rich or somebody who was powerful or somebody who was influential and they were expected to provide for the needs of that culture's clients, uh, the, the people who were poor or the working class. You, could, you might think monarchs and peasants or, or any number of, uh, of analogies. And so in exchange for the patron's protections, the clients would offer loyalty. They would offer service uh, to the patrons. And in a sense, there would be these, these two kinds of people, right? There would be the served and there would be the servants. But Jesus came on the scene, and as he has a tendency to do, he, he began to paint a different picture, a different portrait of expectations for his followers. And so during the Last Supper, he looked at his disciples, he looked at his apostles, and this is what he said. He said, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? He said, but I am among you as one who does what? As one who serves. And so as we talked about last week, what Jesus was doing was portraying a new kind of culture than the one that they had grown familiar with. He wanted them to understand that they were not to be the patrons who were surrounded by a series of clients. They were not to be the served. They were to be the who? The servants, right? And so Jesus is rejecting that patronal, top-down leadership um, that, that was common for the day. And he was calling his followers to servant leadership, the kind of leadership that relies on, uh, on care and on love and on influence to lead people to faith, not the kind of, of leadership that stands from on high and demands it. And so as we talked about last week, Jesus was telling his followers that they had to leave the table. They had to leave the table. They had to leave their places of comfort. They had to leave the places where they reclined and assume the place of server. And so in leaving the table, they have a lot more in common with a server at a restaurant than they do with a diner. And so this week, we are continuing our series by looking at, at one of the other ways that Jesus told his followers or told you and me to give ourselves away. Because if our desire is to give ourselves to Jesus then it's important for us to recognize that Jesus modeled and he intended for us to give ourselves away to others just as he did. And so in today's message, we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about the way that we treat our enemies. And I think it's fitting in light of Independence Day that we talk about 
enemies and, and our relationship with them. But if I told you that Jesus once said, love your enemies, I'm guessing that wouldn't surprise you. That, that statement is probably one that you've either heard him say in a sermon or you've read on your, on your own or is exactly the kind of statement you would expect him to make. But if I asked you specifically what that really looked like or what that really meant, lived out, or better yet, if I asked 100 people what it really looked like or meant lived out, my, my guess is that I would get a lot of different responses, that there wouldn't be this, this overwhelming consensus uh, for what that looks like. And I think the reason for that is pretty simple, that loving enemies is hard. Say hard, church. It's hard. Like it's really, really, really hard. And so if you've ever had an enemy, and you probably have, then you might know what I'm talking about. I think defining what makes an enemy an enemy is, is tricky. It's hard. It reminds me of the, the famous Supreme Court case in, where, in which someone tried to define the difference between what is obscene and what is art in film. And so the Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart famously wrote, well, I, I know it when I see it. Um, it's not enough to say that an enemy is an opponent or an adversary because I, I think I've been opposed in lots of seasons of life by people I like, people I love, people I consider family, even my parents. I think what makes a person an enemy is something much more deeply rooted, at least in my mind. <clears throat> and defining it, I think, seems impossible, except to say that I, I know it when I see it. I know an enemy when I see an enemy. An enemy. There's like a, a see an enemy. There, there's a joke there somewhere that I missed. Um, but an enemy is an opponent that persists and often does so personally. And so when Jesus says to love your enemies, he's not talking about your country's enemies or your culture's enemies. I think as one commentator put it, the New Testament use of the word enemy has a personal hostility to it, a sense of personal hostility. This is a personal enemy, the kind of person you hope you never run into again. And so Jesus told his followers to love that person, to love that person. And so what does that mean? Well, I think that's the question that we're going to try to, to hone in on and try to understand a little bit better today. I invite you to stand with a, and join me for a word of prayer as we get started this morning. Hmm. Father, I can think of very few things that we love talking about less than our enemies. Um, and yet, it was important enough that it was one of the very first things that you spoke about when you address crowds in your sermons on the, the mount or on the plain. Father, you, you care an awful lot about how we treat our neighbor, about how we treat our, our enemies. Um, treating our friends one way is, is easy, but treating our enemies is a whole different story. And so, Father, today you, you call us and you beseech us to love our enemies. And I pray, Father, that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you'd help us to see where there's hardness that needs to be softened, that you give us the courage to not just hear words and do nothing with them, Father, but if you, if you so move, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would move us to action in the way that we treat others. Father, bless our, our time together. We're grateful to be together uh, this Sunday, and we miss those who are not here with us. But Father, bless our time as we try to understand your word. Help us to worship you, not just in the way that we sing, but in the way that we listen, 
in the way that we process, in the way that we speak. Father, as I always pray, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit is speaking through me. And these are not my words, but your words to us. Father, give us ears to hear your your holy word. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. All right. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them to Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27. We're going to be reading 27 through 36 this morning. And so I want to encourage you to take that out and follow along with today's text. But in in Luke chapter 6, we are are introduced to Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, or what is sometimes known as the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel. And so Jesus begins his his sermon, his speech, if you will, with a series of four blessings. He follows those with a series of four woes. And then he follows that with his teaching regarding enemies, that that is, is... Teaching on enemies is important enough that it's nearly the very first thing he talks about in Luke's gospel. And this is what he says. He says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, be merciful, just as your Father is, help me out, merciful. And so as you like reflect back on what we just read, I mean, the very first paragraph alone has maybe three of the most famous or quotable passages in all of the Bible. But the main thrust of what Jesus is saying here in Luke's gospel is, is stated right here up front. Love your enemies. And so as I mentioned in the introduction, I think we, we kind of get that. We, we understand that to some degree. Like we know what, that's what the Bible says. But knowing what to do with that command, I think is a little bit harder, if only because the ask is so countercultural. It runs so opposite to the way that we are, are trained to think as a people. And so because of that, we sort of let ourselves off the hook. Like, like Jesus isn't actually asking people to love their enemies. He just sort of wants us to maybe like not be mean to them. That's sort of how we rationalize it. Like as long as we're not mean to our enemies or don't hurt our enemies or or seek revenge on them, then, then that must be what Jesus is talking about when he says, love your enemies. And even if we concede that, that he was telling us to love our enemies, we behave in such a way that we believe it is our, our actions alone that ultimately matter the most. 
and that our hearts can actually remain unchanged in that process. And so this week, naturally, I spent some time thinking about the questions I have. Uh, think about the question, have I ever had an enemy or who are my enemies? And so the, the very first person that come to mind was a, a guy named Kevin. I got into a fist fight with Kevin back when, I don't know, fourth grade or something like that because my stepbrother didn't know when to keep his mouth shut. And so, you know, Kevin, was he my first enemy? I don't know. Uh, then I thought of a guy named Garrett who happened to like the same girl I liked as a kid growing up in school. Maybe he was my enemy. Or maybe it was Jeremy, the, the ex-best friend of my wife who decided he couldn't come to our, our wedding because he couldn't stand the sight of, of seeing her marry me. I, I, I don't know. We had all these people that started going through my, my mind. But were those my enemies? And as I got to thinking more about that, I said, no, those weren't my enemies. They, they weren't people who, who wished harm on me. They weren't people with which there, there was really any substance to the animosity between us. Most of that stuff was, was silly stuff that I... I you know, the kids deal with. Even the, the wedding thing. I mean, at 20 years old, I was still very much a kid getting married. And so I was dealing with immature emotions. But then I got to thinking about people I've encountered in my adult life. Some in church, uh, since that's where I spent a lot of my adult life. The kinds of people who say nice things to you, but very different things about you. Or the, the kinds of people who stir up others against you or work to sabotage what you're doing. Or, or the kinds of people who just never really give you a chance. They, they just sort of always dislike you. And you're not really sure if they even know why they dislike you, but they just dislike you. You ever encounter people like that? Just You can't do anything to win. Those are the kinds of people I think about when I reflect on the enemies I've encountered in my life. And to be fair, I'm not always the victim, right? We're, we're not always the victim. I mean, there are, there are people whom I have disliked. There are people who I have unfairly targeted with my sideways glances. There are people who I may have even sabotaged or misread or made up some false narrative about in my mind that made sense, that were simply not true. You know, I, I honestly struggle to think about who those people might be because I, I genuinely and generally like people, but I also recognize that I'm as human as, as anybody else. And so part of my sin condition says that I'm every bit as guilty of making enemies as I am the victim of enemies that enemies are a part of life, and all of us must unfortunately deal with them. And yet Jesus says unequivocally to love your enemies. Love those people, those people who hate you, those people who disdain you, who wish to do you or your loved ones harm. It's, it's the kind of truth that's easy to know and can seem rather impossible to practice. So how do we get there? How, how do we do that thing that feels so impossible. I, I was reminded of this kind of off script, if you will, as I was going through things this morning. Uh, I have done this thing at Pepperdine, I've talked about a couple of times called Pep Talks. And a couple of years ago, I was talking to a, a woman, a couple of women actually. One was a professor at Virginia Tech University. The other was a, a mother of a student from Virginia Tech University. Um, it was a student of this professor, and her daughter was, was murdered on a way to a Metallica concert uh, 10 or 15 years ago. And uh, the, these two women had gotten together because uh, they wrote a book together and were traveling around and doing conferences and things talking about forgiveness. Because in the midst of losing her daughter to a murderer, she managed to get to the point where she genuinely forgave, could have a relationship with, and even love the murderer of her children or her, her daughter. And that to me was astounding. It was, it was so 
intense to have a conversation with her and understand that there was genuinely no malice in her heart for, for what she had gone through. And as a dad, I'm just telling you, that's, that is unrelatable. That is hard for me to process. Um, so how do we get there? How do we do those things that are impossible or feel impossible to do? Like, how can I do good to those who hate me? How, how can I honestly bless those who curse me? How, how can I genuinely pray for someone who's mistreated me? How can I genuinely pray for someone who has murdered my daughter? Like, those are very real questions that people in this world have to face every day. And so Jesus talks about that, that famous line that when someone slaps you, you should turn to them the other also. And I think it's worth noting that the slap here is more than a slap. It's a, it's a strike to the jaw. I mean, this is a punch. Um, you think about it, what do you do when you're punched? Because as a kid, I was told, never be the first one to punch. But man, if someone punches you, <laughs> have at it. That was what I was taught as a kid. And yet Jesus is telling me to be composed enough to turn my face to the other side and allow myself to be struck the same way again? Like seriously? That's what Jesus wants me to do? That if someone takes the shirt off my back or my jacket, I should give them the shirt off my back as well? That's what Jesus wants me to do as a Christian? Because the world just doesn't work that way. The world does not expect us to deal with our enemies that way. You know, the world says that we should love ourselves and deny our enemies. And then Jesus comes in and messes things all up. And all of a sudden he says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. You need to deny yourself and love your enemies. Deny yourself and love your enemies. And then in verse 31, he goes into the, the golden rule, right? Do to others as you would have them or have others do to you. And you know what's interesting about that statement? We, raise your hand if you've heard that quote before somewhere along the way in your life. Yeah, like that's a famous quote. And, and it's not a quote that is only attributed or strictly attributed to Jesus. Like there are lots and lots of cultures and faiths and religions and philosophers who have said almost the exact same way, thing in different, in different words. Uh, the apocryphal text Tobit says, And what you hate, do not do to anyone. There's a Confucianist text that says, What I do not wish men to do to me, I also wish not to do to men. There's a Buddhist text that says, Hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. And Hillel, the, the renowned Jewish leader born 100 years before Jesus had written, uh, What is hateful to you, do not to your brother. That is the whole Torah. And I can go on and on and on and on with these quotes, but I think you get my point. That, that Jesus' words here in Luke echo the wisdom and teaching of many, many people throughout uh, the history of the world. Uh, and those words continue to be cherished throughout the world even to this day. But there's something unique about what Jesus says. There's something unique about Jesus' teaching specifically. And I think it has a tremendous impact on what Jesus means when he says, love your enemies. Did you catch what was different about the way that Jesus said this phrase? Every time other cultures of, uh, and faiths mention this golden rule, it's stated in the negative. It's some version of do not do to others what you would not want others to do to you. Almost every instance is stated that way. But Jesus comes in and he stands on the mount or he stands on the plain, wherever he's standing, and he essentially says, it's pretty easy to, to not do things for another um, that you would not want done for you. But he says, I'm saying do to others 
what you would want others to do to you. And so he's taking the same words, he's taking the same concepts that are being recognized as wisdom, as wisdom for the day, and he's stating those things in the positive. And so I'm just speaking for me here, but it's rather doable, I think, for me to like, not kill someone or not slander someone because I don't want to be killed or slandered myself. That is easier. That seems reasonable to me. But when you ask me to go and do for someone who is my enemy what I would want done for me, man, that changes everything. That changes things quite a bit. Because now, what does that mean? It means I need to feed my enemy. It means that I need to clothe my enemy. It means that I need to be patient with my enemy. I need to be hospitable to my enemy. I need to speak gently to my enemy and respect them and cherish them and give them the benefit of the doubt. All because those are the kinds of things I want done for me. I want to be... uh, I want people to be hospitable to me. I want people to give me the benefit of the doubt. I want people to forgive me. And so you think about all the reasons that that people have been upset with you for something you said or or hated you for something you did or didn't do or said or didn't say. I mean, think about all the times that you wish you would have have just forgiven that thing or um, could have been forgiven for that thing that you did in the moment or that thing that you said without thinking. Like we've all been there. We've all lost relationships or damaged relationships and made enemies over things that we wish we could just take back. And so if it, like, we think like if only so-and-so would give me a second chance, we could make this all better. Like we, we could fix this relationship. Like if you can remember times that you've had a thought like that, then imagine the people who may be in your life who wished the same thing of you, who wished that they could have a second chance with you. And so what Jesus is telling us as followers of his is that we need to think of all the things that we'd want done for us in any season, in any facet of life, and be willing to do the same for an enemy. And so rarely do we see this kind of behavior in our world today. Rarely. And rarely do we see it even in scripture. But there is one story that I think is is worth our attention. You remember the story of David and Saul, right? Saul is a king of Israel. He's the king of God's chosen people. He was chosen by God himself to be the very first king over Israel. But as we we know throughout history, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Help me out. Absolutely, right? And so Saul is no different. And so God looks into Saul's heart and he sees this corruption. He sees uh, an issue and he chooses to remove his blessing from King Saul. He says, I regret that I have made Saul king. I regret it because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. And as Samuel the prophet spoke to King Saul on behalf of God, he said, you, Saul, have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel And so as God withdrew his blessing from King Saul, you may remember that it quickly came to rest on someone else. It came to rest on a a young boy named David. But that didn't mean David was going to be king yet. What did David do first? He went to serve Saul. He was in service to the king. He He was devoted to the king. And you remember the story of David and Goliath, right? Nobody wanted to face Goliath. Nobody wanted to face this giant Philistine of a man. But David said, I'll do it. And so he went in there with his slingshot, with some stones, and with the spirit of the living God with him. And he took down the Philistine uh, giant, and he took down the Philistine army in the process. And sure enough, because of that, 
David became a legend. He became a legend among the people of Israel. And they sang and they danced. And they said, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And what happened after that? Saul realized that where God's anointing had gone, that it had left him and it went to the person of David. And he was jealous. He was enraged. And so that corrupt Saul had found his enemy in that moment. And for the next eight chapters, Saul is going to try and he's going to fail numerous times to kill David. And every single time, David manages to escape, manages to elude him. And not only does David elude Saul, but on more than one occasion, David has an opportunity to kill Saul, to remove the threat on his life, right? Whether it's in a cave or whether it's while Saul is sleeping, um, David has a chance to end the, the, the threat on his life. After the cave incident, he comes out, he confronts Saul. He says, this day you have seen with your own eyes, Saul, how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. And some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on the Lord, on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. And so Saul repented. He said, you're right. I'm sorry. I won't do that again. And two chapters later, guess what happened? He was doing it all over again. And David and his men found Saul sleeping in camp. Again, he had a chance to end this threat on his life. And instead, he tells his nephew, nephew Abishai, he says, don't destroy him. Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should, say, should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. And sure enough, a couple chapters later, Saul chooses to end his own life. And what does David do in that moment? He sits down and he weeps. He sits down and he weeps, both for his friend Jonathan, but also, we're told, for Saul. That's the kind of man David was. David understood and lived what Jesus was later going to teach here in Luke chapter 6, that you do to your enemies what you would want done for you. And so in David's case, that meant that he needed to respect and honor the man who God had made king because that's what he would want done for him if he were king and he's going to have his chance because David could have killed Saul and that would have been rational. It would have been reasonable. It would have been celebrated. Raise your hand if you would have looked sideways at David for killing Saul. Raise your hand if you would have supported him killing Saul if you were in his army. Yeah, there's a couple of us willing to be brave enough to raise hands, right? Yeah, that's, that, that, that's what's accepted. That's acceptable. That's celebrated. But instead, David chose to love his enemy and to do for him what he would want done for him. And so you see, like, the, the problem that we run into when we're confronted with our enemies is that we make assumptions of ourselves that are not based in reality, that by our very nature, we tend to prop ourselves up. We tend to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and to believe that we ourselves are basically good people. We think highly of ourselves. And we behave in such a way that when we make questionable decisions or when we do questionable things, that we are justified for our actions. Like if only we had a chance to explain ourselves, then you would support what I did because what I did was the right thing. So people tend to think of themselves as pretty good people, and yet Paul has to come in and write to the church in Rome, in Romans 12, 3, and change their perspective. He says to, to Rome, he says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself 
with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. And so that the command to do for others what we would want others to do for us is a command that requires us to see ourselves with humility and to see ourselves in the same way that God sees us. The Bible says that once upon a time, we were God's enemies. We think of ourselves so highly, but we're enemies of God, according to Paul. That's what we were. And yet, according to Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. While we were still sinners, that's how he demonstrated his love for us. Jesus modeled the kind of love that does good for enemies. And so friends, the secret to loving our enemies, I think the way that Jesus commands us to love our enemies, lies in one simple visual. Just one thing I want you to kind of remember and help you take with you as you go. Remember your reflection. Remember your reflection. What do I mean by that? Well, when we lose sight of who we are, when we lose sight of our own sin, our own brokenness, our own reflection, then we lose our ability to love an enemy. But when we remember our need for grace, when we remember our need for forgiveness and what has already been done for us, then everything changes and we are are free to love an enemy despite all of their malice, despite all of their efforts and faults, Because God saw the depths of our hearts. He saw the depths of my heart and he loved us the same. He loves us the same despite seeing the depths of our hearts. Church, that deserves an amen. Amen. Not because of what I said, but he loves us the same. And so my reflection tells me, it reminds me that I am an enemy of God. That that is my sinful nature. I'm reminded in, in Shakespeare... Shakespeare wrote a play called Richard II. There's a scene in which King Richard is confronted by by Henry Percy. He's the Earl of Northumberland. And Percy brings a piece of paper with a list of charges, a list of grievances against Richard for crimes against the state. And he wants Richard to read them aloud in front of all these people to humiliate him and shame him. And we're we're told that Richard looks at it and he says, Mine eyes are full of tears. I cannot see. He's weeping at the thought of having to read these crimes. And instead, he sends someone to find a mirror and to bring it back to him. And he says that it may show me what a face I have since it is bankrupt of its majesty or of his majesty. And so as the man goes and returns with a mirror, Richard looks at his own reflection. He remembers his crimes. He embraces his guilt and he shatters the mirror. And he says, how soon my sorrow hath destroyed my face. You see, sometimes the reflection that we see in the mirror is sobering. That in our best days, we look in the mirror and we remember who we really are. That we are all broken people in the hands of a loving and merciful God. The kind of God who loves us so much that we don't get what we deserve because we deserve death. And in his mercy, we are granted what? everlasting life and so remember your reflection because it is in remembering that reflection that we can finally be free of the world that insists that we punch back jesus says in verse 32 and following if you love those who love you what credit is that to you even sinners love those who love them and if you do good to those who do good to you 
What credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, again, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. He says there's nothing special about that kind of living. There's nothing extraordinary about that. That's what everyone does. Everyone is nice to people who are nice to them. Everyone loves people who love them back. But when we remember our reflection, we can live out verse 35. We can love our enemies. We can do good to our enemies. And we can lend to our enemies without expecting anything back. That, Jesus says, is where we find our reward. And so our calling is to show mercy because we've been shown mercy. And so I want everyone here just to take a moment. I want you to think of someone you're estranged from. Think of someone who's hurt you. Someone you just don't like. Someone who's wronged you. And I want you to think of that person. We're not going to share who that person is, but when you have that, that face or that name in your head, I just want you to quietly raise your hand. Think of that person in your life who you're estranged from. You can raise them up higher so we can see. And as you keep your hand raised, I want to ask you this question. I want you to think about this question. (laughs) Nathaniel's got two hands in the air. (laughs) How can you love that person? I want you to think about that genuinely. How can you love that person? You can put your hands down. How do you dig deep? How do you find the strength necessary to love that person who is so hard to love? How do you do that? And as I thought about it this week and just prayed on this this text, I'm convinced the answer to that question is this. It's, It's remember your reflection. Remember who you are. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Because if you've been shown mercy and you have, then God is calling you to show mercy. That if you were God's enemy, and yet he still chose to love you and to reconcile you to him through the cross of Christ, then God's calling on your life is to love your enemies and to do to them what you would want done to you. And that call is not too large a task. It begins with remembering your reflection. And so one commentator this week had these thought-provoking words, and I think they're important. He said, it's impossible to be outwardly forgiving, or it's possible, rather, to be outwardly forgiving without showing real love. It's possible to be outwardly forgiving without showing real love. God doesn't much care what it looks like on the outside. He sees the depths of our heart. He doesn't care what, we, what it looks like on the outside He sees our heart and he extends to us still real love. And so as we conclude our our Independence Day weekend, I think it's fitting that we close with some words from Abraham Lincoln. He once said, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? My prayer is that you might leave this place today with that name, that face, that person in mind and destroy an enemy in your life. Not with your hands, not with a weapon, but armed with the the power of the Holy Spirit of God to do good, to show mercy, and to love without condition. May we leave the table and may we remember our reflection 
And in so doing, may we see clearly to love even an enemy. Let's pray. Father, you you have looked at the, the very depths of who we are. You see the ugly. You see the disgusting. You see the sin. You see all the times that my heart and our hearts are far from you. The times when I want everything this world has to offer and none of you. Those are desires that all of us face. And so this morning, I pray that you would challenge us, that you would convict us, and that you would help to change our, our mentality, not just about our enemies, but about ourselves. Help us to see ourselves for who we really are, that we are broken people in need of your mercy. And in so doing, Father, help us to be strong enough and willing and obedient to show mercy to broken people who have hurt us. Help us to love our enemies the way that you have loved us. Father, bless our our week ahead. Thank you for our fellowship with our brothers and sisters. And Father, if anyone here has not received their faith in you, Lord, I pray that they would be courageous enough to receive you this morning. Father, thank you for our friends. Thank you for our family. And thank you for our enemies. May we learn how to be more like you because of them. And we pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.